we should put a right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. It's not there. Everybody assumed that it was a protected right, but it's not actually stated in the Constitution. I think it would be good if there was some consideration given to establishing a constitutional right to vote, to get around all these abuses that have accelerated enormously since the very bad decision in Shelby County. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. Joining us today is Senator Russ Feingold, former U.S. Senator from Wisconsin from 1993 to 2011, now president of the American Constitution Society and author of a book I heartily recommend, While America Sleeps, a wake-up call for the post-9-11 era. Senator Feingold, thank you for joining us today. Karen, it's a pleasure to be at. I'm very happy to talk to you, and there is so much to talk about, but I just want to mention your book, You know, the center was founded to look at the intersection between national security and civil liberties and the rule of law. So you can imagine our our work has not dwindled over the years. Uh, And you wrote a book about the post 9-11 world. And I want to talk a little bit about the title, While America Sleeps, because I think most people would associate with Churchill's While England Slept. But you, who acknowledge Churchill, are pointed more towards Kennedy's thesis, which was published, Why England Slept, right? And yours updates it to the present tense, but also echoes Kennedy and perhaps Churchill. And I just wanted you to talk about the title a little bit and what you were trying to signal. Yeah, you got it exactly right. I I was moved by the connection to Winston Churchill's famous book and also Kennedy's thesis because I was trying to convey the experience I had had being in the United States Senate on the occasion of of 9-11. I was on the Judiciary Committee and uh, later on the Intelligence Committee and on the Foreign Relations Committee. Almost all the critical committees other than armed services that related to trying to get things right. And what I was basically saying was in two parts. One is we got the foreign policy part wrong after 9-11 because we sort of thought of it in conventional terms. First, it was Afghanistan, then it was Iraq. We didn't really understand the nature of the threat and made a lot of dumb calls and uh, got ourselves involved in a couple of wars that didn't make a lot of sense. But the second half of the book is about getting things wrong domestically not really realizing that we didn't need to take extreme measures with regard to the civil liberties of Americans, and that a number of things were done in the name of national security, all the way from the Patriot Act to the Department of Homeland Security with way too broad of powers. So I was basically saying, here are things that we really, now that it's been 10 years, which it was at the time, since 9-11, these are some things we really need to correct. And sure enough, What we've seen, uh, even since you and I have last talked, is that a number of the things that weren't carefully drafted at the time are being exploited by the current president in ways we might not have even imagined. So that's essentially what the book was about. 
And it was about America sleeping and not really understanding both the international domestic nature of, of the world that we live in. A wake-up call. And we didn't quite wake up the way you had in the book said we should wake up. And just to underscore with a little specificity, when you talk about what had gotten out of control that many people had worried about in the 2001, 2002, 2003 period as these new authorities were put in place, one of them is DHS, Department of Homeland Security. And now you see sort of a, what, a law enforcement militarization of DHS, both at the border, but also in cities around the country. And is that part of what you were <laughs> referring to? Yeah, but I mean, I try to get people who ask me about this to see three different major legislative actions and presidential actions as interconnected at that period. The first was the rush to pass the USA Patriot Act without you know, properly vetting it and getting it right, making sure that the provisions weren't really about drug cases, which many of them were. They had nothing to do with terrorism, it was just an opportunity. The second one, of course, was the insane rush to judgment on no evidence toward the Iraq war. That was done for political reasons as well and was jammed up right before the 2002 midterm elections, uh, even though Bush didn't even go into Iraq till later. So that was done mostly for political reasons. And then the third one that was also jammed in just before the 2002 election was the passing of a Department of Homeland Security that wasn't properly controlled. Most people thought it was not a bad idea to have a Department of Homeland Security that's properly vetted, but this thing was open-ended. Recently, I was on uh, CNN with Paul Rosenzweig, who is a very conservative uh, lawyer. Yeah, I saw. And he, uh, he basically said, you know, I remember Senator Feingold's objections at the time, but I thought they were far-fetched. He said, we owe you an apology. Uh, because, you know, I didn't even imagine that somebody like President Trump would have the willingness to abuse these procedures like he did in Portland, having people that weren't even trained to do this, get out of the car and arrest people. And it was because the legislation was not properly drafted, it was not narrow enough, and that needs to be fixed. It can be fixed. But the way to think of it is these were three very political acts that were done on purpose to give the Republicans control of the Senate, and it, it actually worked. They did get control back in 2002, which, uh, you know, really should not have been what we, we were focused on. Let's turn to your new role, president of the American Constitution Society. What a time to have this job. There is so much going on that I could put into the basket of how a progressive legal organization should pay attention to now. <laughs> so What's your top two priorities in, as, as president today? You don't have to speak well, to you know, yesterday. Here, here's the problem. This is a cornucopia of awful things. And it was already a cornucopia of awful things before I started the job in March. So I started in March. And since then, we, have, of course, have had COVID-19, economic problems that are severe and particularly impact people of color and others in a disproportionate way. Yeah. Uh, we have had the civil unrest and horrible feelings about the racist nature of many of the institutions in our society. So the George Floyd events, and then all the protest events and the abuses by the president and the attorney general in that area. And yes, we have just a huge combination of these things. So the role that the American Constitution Society is trying to play is it's a national network of 200 student chapters and 50 lawyer chapters and a lot of top academics and others. And so we immediately had 
a lot of significant programs on the impact of COVID on a lot of things, access to justice, healthcare, incarceration, uh, the disproportionate impact on, pe on people of color. Uh, we also uh, have used this opportunity to make sure that our programming is especially focused on the racial injustice aspects of our legal system. So yes, of course, policing, qualified immunity, but beyond that, the death penalty, the resumption of the death penalty, by uh, Barr's uh, Justice Department uh, rushing to judgment to kill people in a penalty that is disproportionately uh, disadvantaging to uh, people of color and black people in particular. And so what we are trying to do is be that organization that can connect practicing lawyers, students, the public at large and academics together to be ready for what's happening. A great example, a couple of weeks ago on the rule of law issue, on the national security issue, we were able to put forward an excellent piece by the former dean of Yale Law School, Harold Cope, current professor there, basically saying, you know, some liberals are saying that the Insurrection Act actually is pretty open-ended. Uh, professor Coe says, no, it's not. There are only very limited circumstances in which the president can use this authority from the being requested by the, the governor and certain elements of civil unrest that are out of control. So we stand up the, the rule of law point. And today, I was actually emailing with him at about four o'clock in the morning because he, he gets up early and so do I. And we had done some work when I was uh, visiting Professor E.L. Law School with him on this 25th Amendment issue that is now relevant today, which what happens if the president becomes incapacitated. And we were able within two hours to have this excellent piece that the students did there a couple of years ago about the 25th Amendment and what happens in a situation like that. So. I feel like we're nimble, that we have a network, and that we are one of the only organizations out there that can help people with the legal side of all of these things. And almost every one of them, of course, has legal implications. And we want a progressive view uh, of the law to prevail in these situations. So I, I looked at that article. It was up on your site, I guess, early this morning. So you got up really early because so do <laughs> I. I. It was already I there. I'm in central um, time. <laughs> I know. I was just, yeah. So um, and I was looking at the article, which you're right. Nobody's ever since the 25th Amendment was passed in 1967, nobody's ever invoked this uh, section four of it about, you know, declaring the president unable to perform the duties of the presidency. What do you think, having read this piece? Do you think that it's possible that this could happen? Or is it just one of those things that just too high a bar, no matter what the circumstances? No, I mean, if the president truly is sick and is un unable to function, it, 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 what triggers it is the, is the majority of the cabinet and the vice president voting to just at least temporarily uh, turn the powers over to the vice president. I mean, the only way it would happen is that. It, it wouldn't be sort of a generic decision by his own people in all likelihood to remove him. But you know, this was, this was based on times when like Eisenhower had the severe heart issues and, and certainly after the Kennedy assassination and yeah. when Reagan was shot. These, these are situations like that, but my view is, and, and I think some of this is included, that actually the 25th Amendment is even broader than that. I think it goes to whether a president is actually uh, competent and able to carry out the function of the job, apart from having a, some kind of a physical disability or medical disability. And uh, that's something that you can at least see in the records of the debates about it when uh, Senator Bayh of Indiana in those days uh, mm -hmm. was leading the charge on this. So, you know, it's not likely to be invoked, but we want to, what we try to do is make sure that people have the, the information and the answers right away before something unfolds, because the lesson, as you've indicated, 
of the last couple of years and especially the last eight months is anything can happen. So we try to get ahead of these things. Yeah, that's why we get up so early because anything can happen. <laughs> We're always trying to figure out what's going to happen. One of the strategies that this administration has used is to fill the court with judges, the courts, the district courts, circuit courts, with judges that are conservative judges, Federalist Society chosen judges. And they've been remarkably successful as it, as the president has claimed, and rightfully so, 200 judges you know, across the country. Um, this will be the third nominated Supreme Court justice. And so that does have an impact on how decisions are made, how law is interpreted, what powers, whether there is a separation of powers. I mean, we've seen the courts put in a political conversation now for quite some time. What do you think? Is it all going to come out in the wash because judges will be nonpartisan ultimately? How, do you, how should we think about this? I wish I could say that, Karen. It's not the way it feels today. And that's a very sad moment because I believed uh, through most of my life that you could rely on judges to do the right thing. We're not, we're not in that place anymore. We're in a situation where the right has captured the courts, uh, the Federalist Society, the Koch brothers and others made a pact that they would uh, pre-screen people on some very narrow social issues and a couple other issues and protect the big business interests in this country. And that's what they're doing is they're putting in very young judges. Trump has, as you, as you said, about 200 judges. He's right, it's a record. And they're overwhelmingly white and male. They are not diverse. And so what we have to do is, is dramatically reverse this because what we're facing and what the young generations now are facing is these people that are put on, they're 35 and 40 years old, they may be sitting there 50 years from now, frustrating the dreams and the aspirations of those who are in their 30s and 20s and teen years. And this is just wrong. The system could not have been intended to be like that. So what are we doing? We are not gonna copy the Federal Society. We are pivoting. We are doing a grassroots approach. Our lawyer chapters around the country have formed 40 working groups. They are extremely busy preparing names that we are vetting through a, a major law firm to make sure that we are ready on election day to submit to a potential transition as is legally allowed and to senators offices, the names of people that represent diversity in terms of background, in terms of ethnic background, racial background, LGBTQ, um, diversity of practice, people that have represented unions and are public defenders and community activists. And this is unheard of to have this kind of a list ready, to be honest with you. So we are uh, going to be prepared uh, to make sure that when vacancies occur, and there will be substantial vacancies, if there is a different president, to be able to fill those slots. But if we don't do this, what we basically have is we're losing our democracy to a essentially a kangaroo court, an illegitimate series of, of courts and, and the Supreme Court that uh, is predisposed to knock down the will of the American people. So look, it's one thing if the courts are striking down laws that are based on some kind of an objective analysis. This is just political. This is, this is politicizing the courts and it, it cannot be allowed in a democracy that the Supreme Court strikes down things on partisan grounds on a regular basis. And I think that's where we're heading. Are you surprised that it happened. Why couldn't we have stood up to this, we, you know, being more progressive, more liberal, more civil liberties oriented, constitutionally careful? Why couldn't we stop this sooner? Were we just being naive? Well, I, I actually remember, because I came to the Senate in the 90s, that we were not 
missing the boat at all because we started to see these various court of appeal judges being appointed who were really ideological. And we did stop a number of them effectively at the time. And the Republicans, frankly, were very bitter about that, but we could see what the strategy was. These pre-vetted people. I will tell you though, Karen, I am surprised and was surprised when McConnell was willing to basically destroy the role of the Senate to stop Merrick Garland be, from becoming a Supreme Court justice. And I'm shocked that he's willing to play this game right after the death of Justice Ginsburg, right during an election when the president is likely to lose. He is destroying the credibility of both the Supreme Court and the United States Senate at the same time. And I will tell you that that level of ruthlessness is surprising to me and disappointing. And one of the toughest things going forward is how do we respond? There is a lot of conversation about is it time to consider adding more justices, which the Congress and the president can do without a constitutional amendment? Is it time to start talking about having a term limit on judges, federal judges, particularly Supreme Court? Many scholars have talked about an 18-year limit. Uh, is it time to talk about taking away some of the jurisdiction from the Supreme Court? That's called court stripping. The Congress has the power to do that. And I got to tell you, Karen, I never would have believed in any of these things. Uh, because I didn't think it'd ever get this bad, but it is this bad. How does it work that one side gets to be completely ruthless and trash everything, and the other side is supposed to just sit there and take it? I don't think that can be the answer. And so I think there's a growing consensus that should things change in this election, I think there's going to be a lot of activity regarding the judiciary come January. Wow, that'll be great. You're in a perfect role to educate and help people think about it. You're exactly right. That's what we're allowed to do. We're not allowed to actually endorse legislation. Right. So. <laughs> Educate and think. This is You said it perfectly. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Supreme Court nomination, which you talked about before, and this idea of railroading it through before the election. For the general public, how should they think about this? Because either way, it looks like it's going to be politicized. If you hold it up, if you let it happen afterwards, if you, it all looks politicized now. Is there any way to step outside of that politicized conversation about this next appointment? I hope so, because essentially the most important way to think about it is it's obviously unfair and inappropriate to jam through this nomination. Now, anybody who's being fair-minded, uh, let's say they were going to court in a case and this was happening in their case, nobody would really think that this is the way this should be conducted. It is nothing but a naked power play. So if you talk about it in those terms, I think people might say, well, haven't the Democrats always done that? No, it's never been done. And there were opportunities to do things like that and they weren't done. And so it's time to appeal to that basic sense of fairness, which I hope the American people still have. Uh, instead of just being divided and feeling like they're always on one side or the other. And uh, that will help inform what has to be done. It's pretty obvious things aren't going to turn out well on this, uh, but I hope it offends people's sense of decency. And here's the other piece that's even more important. It creates a court that can destroy the will of the American people, whatever that is. Our idea of this government is that people are elected and they pass laws that people want. If a group of nine people who are chosen in a ruthless process that doesn't involve fairness and balance, if they can strike down those laws, that's not a democracy anymore. That's an oligarchy of nine people uh, who do not have that right. And it is not in the Constitution that the Supreme Court has that right. It was enunciated famously by Chief Justice Marshall 
in Marbury versus Madison, but it was not automatic. And it's only because there has been restraint and canons and norms over the generations about how far this can go that it hasn't been challenged. But a number of scholars have pointed out that it was not even understood that the Supreme Court would be able to strike down congressional laws on their own at all. The Congress had its own right to determine constitutionality. And so uh, I think most of us believe that the court had this role, but if you destroy the credibility of the court, it loses its moral credibility in terms of striking down the will of the American people through legislation. And that's where we're at. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This sort of lack of a balance of power within the separation of powers, from my point of view, after 9-11, the presidency has become increasingly powerful, empowered in part by deference, both from Congress and from the courts. Now we have an attorney general who really is not keen on separating the Department of Justice from the presidency and the powers of the president. Is there a way back from that? Or do you think there's been real change to the structure and the concept of governance? Well, that's the mildest way I've heard it described. That he was, <laughs> yes, that's very diplomatic of you. Um, he's basically operating as the president's mm -hmm. personal lawyer. He has created one of the greatest offenses in the history of the Justice Department. But there is historical precedent for repairing this sort of thing. After Watergate, of course, Gerald Ford became president. And he appointed Edward Levy, the president of the University of Chicago to be attorney general. This man was not a liberal. This man was a conservative. He was a big advocate of Judge Bork. Uh, but he came in and famously did the job of restoring the norms and the credibility of the Justice Department after John Mitchell had done great damage to it. And I remember that people all across the board gave him tremendous credit for that. That's what has to happen. If there is a new president and a new attorney general, that person has got to restore the norms and the beliefs about how do you treat the FBI, you know, not interfering with sentencing by judges, you name it, all the things that have been done that have made a laughingstock. It's actually, it's hard to laugh at it, but it's worse than a laughingstock of the Justice Department, which is one of the most important institutions in our nation. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Levy because he understood the challenge that was before him. And the Democrat Edward Levy to come in if, if there's a change in administration. So you've cared about elections uh, for a long time, both in your role on the judiciary and elsewhere. But now the question of elections and their legitimacy, their viability, all of the things that we'd like them to be their fairness is in question on so many levels, whether it's voter suppression, enhanced by COVID, enhanced by presidential discrediting of the mail-in ballot process. What do you think about the, what's going to happen in this election in terms of legitimacy? Can we protect the viability of the process in the next few weeks? I hope so, but we're in great danger. We're in terrible danger because the whole idea of elections is they stand between people resolving differences violently amongst themselves. That's the whole idea, yeah. is that you have a peaceful election and people accept the results and they, if they lose, they go to next time. We have a president of the United States who won't even say that he's gonna accept the legitimacy of the election as attacking the way in which people are trying to vote in the midst of a, of, of a, a pandemic. Uh, and so, um, you know, this has happened in many other countries over the years when I was a involved with foreign policy and would go to Africa frequently and try to talk to them about people about their elections. You know, we became sort of a laughing stock after 2000 with the mess that we had in Bush v. Gore. 
And so now we're in that position where our whole electoral system is being doubted intentionally by people within the country, as well as Russians and others trying purposely to destroy the legitimacy of our elections. And we are, we are on the verge of real trouble if people don't pull back and stop accusing each other of cheating and being fraudulent and so on. There's really no way back if we don't have a belief that our elections are legitimate. That will lead to just chaos. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Bush v. Gore, because in a lot of ways, this whole conversation about the elections, how they get decided, what's allowable, what isn't, started there in a major way. Is there things we should have attended to earlier after Bush v. Gore? I mean, are there specific things we can do now to make sure we're not in this situation again? Well, it's a huge subject, but I remember that Senator Dianne Feinstein really tried hard to get people to pay attention to this. Yeah. Uh, The irony, though, is... (laughs) As, as people thought the, the answer might be to go to, you know, the internet and electronics and so on to, to solve the problem rather than paper ballots, because you remember the hanging chads? Yeah, of course. Of course, now we're discovering even scarier problems with voting machines and the possibility of tampering with voting machines and what goes on with the uh, interference with elections on the internet. And so that's ironic, is that yeah. the, people thought that was the direction to go. So I think we have to have sort of a fail-safe system. You know, there was an interesting incident in Virginia after 2016. They had a gathering of all the election officials in the state of Virginia. And they had a number of hackers come in and show how easy it would be for them to hack into the voting totals. And so Virginia went to a mandatory paper ballot backup. Mm-hmm. And it's sad that we have to do this because it's very laborious sort of thing. But I think we're going to need that kind of a verification system because people aren't going to believe in the elections anymore. And I think I I cannot believe how close we are to disaster on this. Paper backups. It's like your passcodes, your passwords on a piece of paper, right? Okay. You can't find, you can't read. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Pardons. I wanted to talk about pardons. I know the ACS has given a little bit of thought to this. It's kind of in the air. Can a president pardon himself? Well, I hope not, but it is not absolutely clear in the Constitution. And uh, when I was teaching at Stanford, one of the professors there was talking to me about a possible constitutional amendment that would clarify this. Look, we don't have to call a constitutional convention, which would be very dangerous, but there are things that could be fixed in the Constitution by a constitutional amendment, such as getting rid of the Electoral College and clarifying the pardon power. It should be narrowed. It was never intended to obviously allow the president to pardon himself, but it's not absolutely clear. Uh, and so that would be clarified by a constitutional amendment. And, you know, I almost have this crazy idea that if we get past this current administration, maybe two thirds of the members of the Senate and the House would agree that we should clarify that. I'm not so sure that's something that, that Republicans want any more than Democrats that a president can pardon himself. So I think we should open our mind to the possibility of essentially certain fix-it constitutional amendments that are not about gutting the Constitution or turning it radically to the right, but fixing some of the glitches that exist. And that's one of them. What else? Well, I think this issue of of the 25th Amendment and presidential succession will probably have to be clarified more. I'm not sure the mechanism that was put in the 25th Amendment is the best way to go in this regard. And we may need to be a more, have a more independent mechanism than simply the cabinet and the current vice president. Uh, So that's another one. I think that we should do something, in my view, we should do things like uh, clarifying that uh, under the Bill of Rights that the death penalty is cruel and unusual punishment and make it absolutely clear that that cannot be done. 
And one other one I want to mention, Karen, is we should put a right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. It's not there. Everybody assumed that it was a protected right, but it's not actually stated in the Constitution. I think it would be good if there was some consideration given to establishing a constitutional right to vote, to get around all these abuses that have accelerated enormously since the very bad decision in Shelby County. That's really interesting because a series of constitutional amendments is another way of saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, we need to have a, a rethink. Okay, we've had a constitution that we've worked with that's morphed over time and evolved over time, but it's a fundamental rethink of things maybe, is it okay to say that the founding fathers didn't and couldn't have foreseen? Because there is a sense that we just need to come together again and have some thoughts about what we want the country to look like. And we're at a pivotal point. Would you agree or? Yes. I mean, look, I think it's dangerous to, although there is an effort that's going on on the right, to call a constitutional convention because there are no rules. Right. And it's done on a state by state basis. So there's a very good chance it would be very conservative and what would come out of it would be very conservative. Now, some great scholars on the left, like Larry Lessig at Harvard and Sandy Levinson at the University of Texas have said, Let, we should do that. Progressives mm -hmm. should do that. What I am saying is that's a very difficult conversation. What can be done is you can, without completely redoing the constitution, fix a number of problems through the normal route, I shouldn't call it the normal route, it's the only route that's ever been used, which is through Congress. Two thirds of both houses and then three quarters of the states ratify it. So uh, at ACS, I'm gonna lead an effort to educate the public on, and, the, and particularly lawyers on, you know, what's the history of these constitutional amendments? What can be done? What is dangerous? What, what is that we might wanna avoid? I think this is a coming crisis and it's also an opportunity. And I think it will be, especially if there's a change in administration, I predict that the right pushes very hard for a constitutional convention that could fundamentally redo the constitution on a partisan basis. Well, that kind of leads to my last question, which is the same last question on every show, which is, what are you hopeful about? Well, this is the hardest time in my life to feel hopeful. I guess what I'm hopeful about is that I see the people of the world, of the planet, realizing that we have to come together to do something about the climate issue and about the loss of biodiversity. And that can cut across regional lines, that can cut across the lines of political differences. And that unless we're crazy, we can maybe come together as a people and as a world to do something about that. And I'm hoping that that kind of cooperation will help. I was working yesterday with the Campaign for Nature, which I do some work for as well. And that is an international effort to try to bring people together to do something to preserve this planet. And I guess I feel that that's an area that can be more upbeat than some of these internal things we have going on in the United States right now, which I always hope will be better soon, but that's up to other, other things. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Senator Feingold. And I look forward to having you back on Vital Interest Podcast. Great show. Thank you, Karen. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief 
our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interests online forum at centerannationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.